Fired Up show starts right now. Hey everybody, welcome. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast on WJMS Media. This is Steve, your host each week as we dive into the political streams here in the United States of America. I'd like to welcome everybody to the show and I appreciate your uh, taking the time to download and listen to our podcast each week. It really, really is important to me. So let's jump right into it, all right? Uh, We've got some interesting things to talk about this time. Uh, But as always, we start off with a recap of where we are with COVID-19. In the U.S., we're at 81.4 million cases. Uh, We are edging ever closer to that 1 million fatality mark. Uh, We are at 994,000 and change uh, people who have died from the disease. And we've ticked up a few uh, points on the vaccine. We've got 574 million people who have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Uh, It's about 69% of the population are fully vaccinated and about 77% have received uh, at least one dose. So the rule is, as we say each week, uh, make sure that in addition to uh, whatever precautions you are taking when you're out and about in crowded areas, uh, that you're also getting your vaccines, getting boosted. Uh, Again, it's the best way for us to keep this disease in check. And uh, speaking of COVID-19, we had some news this week from our good friend, Dr. Fauci, uh, who on an uh, interview with PBS NewsHour said that the United States is no longer in, quote, the pandemic phase of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, but Americans uh, might need to be vaccinated uh, every year, according to doctor, to keep the virus uh, levels low. And you know, we've, we've talked about this uh, on previous podcasts and in our radio show and so forth, uh, that you know, we are moving to a stage where uh, COVID is going to be you know, like the flu, something that we have to uh, get protected from on an annual basis. Uh, we're moving into that new normality. Uh, According to Dr. Fauci, uh, he said, and I quote, we are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of, of deaths. Uh, we are a low level right now, close quote, and that was from Dr. Fauci. And, you know, according to information from the New York Times, uh, the U.S. is recording around 50,000 new COVID cases per day, down from a high of more than 800,000 during January's Omicron spike. Uh, the seven-day average of death stands at 362 per day, and that's down 32% over the past two weeks while the number of cases driven by the spread of the highly contagious BA2 subvariant is up 61%. So, you know, as I said, uh, you know, just said a, a few seconds ago, we are moving into uh, sort of a constant phase with COVID. Uh, it is moving to become something that we engage with uh, on an annual basis. Or as you know, uh, surges occur in various parts of the country. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep you posted. We'll give you the updates as we do. 
uh, each and every episode. Uh, it, it's something that we are just going to have to uh, get uh, accustomed to, and you know that's just the way of it. All right, so uh, one of the first things that I do want to go through in this episode, um, we've talked a lot, and I mean a whole lot, about the attacks on you know uh, women's right to choose and you know the the uh, Roe v. Wade uh, federal legislation or federal law rather uh, guaranteeing uh, a woman's access to abortion services and as you know uh, particularly if you've been listening to my shows and if you've been following the news in any form or fashion the uh, right to uh, a legal abortion uh, by women has been under a wholehearted attack from the conservative right side of the political spectrum. And, you know, we have seen uh, something like 19 or 20 states that either have enacted uh, anti-abortion legislation or are in the process of uh, passing said legislation so in in tracking this as i as i do every week is one of the subjects that i keep tabs on uh something came up and it was kind of a an aside point that was made in an interview i heard on one of the media sources where the person being interviewed was talking about how at least uh one of the states is giving uh serious consideration to adding uh, contraceptives to the things that are banned under the the abortion restrictions that are coming forward, and um, you know it it's something that you know if you know I'm not a woman, but if if I were a woman, you know I am a father of daughters and granddaughters, so you know I am concerned about you know their reproductive health. Uh, along with everyone else's. Uh, there was an article that came out of the D- Detroit Free Press, and this came out uh, late last week, and uh, it talks about the Michigan GOP, uh, and it's an opinion piece, the Michigan GOP can have my birth control when they pry it from my cold, dead hands. And it was written by uh, Nancy Kaffer, again, the Detroit Free Press, and, you know, she starts off by saying, you know, if you're an American woman younger than 70 years old, maybe if you're a woman alive in America today, it is hard to imagine a world without birth control. Almost all of us use contraception, even those of us with religious prescriptions against its use. And she cites a study by the Guttmacher Institute that found that 99% of American women between the ages of 15 and 44 who have had sex have used contraception, including 98% of American Catholic women. Uh, and these findings, you know, as she reports, are confirmed in survey after survey and by the world all around us, uh, which no longer includes many families uh, with seven or nine or 13 children. So. You know, the, the article is, is stating and, and is introducing us to the fact that uh, she's reporting on three Michigan Republicans uh, who are seeking their party's nomination for attorney general 
Well, they faced off in a debate uh, by the Alcona County, uh, yeah, excuse me, Alcona County Republicans uh, a week ago Friday. And in response to a question raised by the audience, all three said uh, that they um, disagreed with the U.S. Supreme Court's 1965 ruling in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, the decision that barred states from denying married American couples the legal right to birth control. So, you know, you can you can look up the case, uh, you know, but essentially it is uh, about uh, upholding the rights to privacy of the American family, particularly in the case where it comes to um, uh, contraception and birth control within uh, married Amer uh, married couples here in America. So, in the Griswold decision, the justices found that the exercise of many of our constitutional rights are vested in a right to privacy, and that uh, marital privacy trumped state interest, but it seems that uh, these Republican candidates for attorney general in Michigan, uh, they don't see it that way. Uh, two of them weren't initially sure what Griswold, which really is a a fundamental case in legal history in America, and it's, that's often taught in high school. Uh, they weren't initially sure what that case was about. Uh, once reminded of what the Griswold decision was, uh, one of the candidates said he believed the court trampled on states' rights in the decision and that it was wrongly decided. Uh, another of the candidates who wasn't sure about it used his phone to look up the case while uh, the other candidate was answering and you know while saying that he intended to do further research but that he was for states rights and against judicial activism criticizing the court's ruling in in Griswold uh, one said that the privacy issue currently is unworkable and affirmed his support of states rights nonsensically adding that when the feds come and try to take our rights, Michiganders need to, quote, hold the line, close quote. Uh, you know, the, the article talks about how this notion of states' rights, uh, and, and I know you've heard the phrase, it, it's been central to a lot of the discussions that have been happening uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so, or more, actually, uh, where you know, arguments are brought down as to whether it is the federal government or state government that decides, you know, many of the issues that impact our day-to-day. -day. Well, the argument that, you know, states' rights versus judicial activism has often been used by anti-abortion rights activists and opponents of LGBTQ uh, citing state rights as is a softer way to get where they'd like to be, a time when women and LGBTQ people have few or no rights. Let that sink in for a second. So, you know, the, the idea uh, behind this law and behind the case um, that Griswold was a linchpin ruling for a host of subsequent court decisions that collectively form the framework of much of modern American life. For example, it's at the stage for another decision in 1972 uh, called Eisenstadt versus Baird in which justices struck down a Massachusetts law 
that barred unmarried couples from accessing contraception. The court ruled that having granted such access to married couples, there was no rational basis for denying birth control to unmarried couples. And then, of course, you know, the Griswold case also had impacts in terms of uh, Roe versus Wade, where, you know, of course, the landmark case that determined a woman's right to privacy extended to the decision to have an abortion. Laws banning abortion in Michigan are still on the books and would become enforceable again if Roe were overturned. And you know, we've talked about this on this program before, and you've you know, heard it in, in other news sources. I know it is a subject that is widely talked about that should Roe versus Wade get substantially uh, weakened or uh, reversed altogether, that there are a, a number of states uh, that already have uh, restrictive anti-abortion laws on the books that were superseded by Roe. And if that uh, law f is struck down, then those laws are freely available to be exercised by the states. And much of uh, what you hear going on in the states with those that are enacting anti-abortion legislation uh, are states where, you know, such pre-existing laws weren't on the books before Roe, and they are, you know, working to not only uh, enact state legislation to, to ban it, but also to prepare for the time perhaps when, you know, Roe is, you know, emaciated and weakened beyond usefulness or struck down altogether, that they will already have laws on the books and won't have to quote, waste time, close quote, um, you know, writing and building and, and getting these laws passed. So what we're seeing is, you know, that the, the groundwork is being further laid and strengthened by, you know, the conservative right and, you know, the, the anti-abortion groups and the anti-LGBTQ groups and, you know, the, the anti-minority groups in this country, that they are working feverishly to get state laws in place for when they can get, you know, federal laws, uh, re you know, replaced, revoked, or, you know, severely restricted. Um, another one uh, was a case in 2015, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, where the the high court ruled that ruling that overturned laws barring same-sex marriages, likewise rooted in the right to privacy. Michigan's ban on same-sex marriage remains not only a part of state law, but in the state's constitution. So, you know, the, the, the battles that are being fought by the conservative um, side of the spectrum uh, are not just, you know, individualized battles on certain uh, laws on the books to eliminate them or make them more restrictive. Uh, what is happening is we are seeing that privacy, the fundamental rights to privacy that, you know, are guaranteed in our Constitution and affirmed by the legal elements that uh, are part of our legal system system that flows down from the Constitution. Uh, 
there was some comments made by uh, State Attorney General in Michigan, uh, Dana Nessel, uh, who is, you know, lining up to face one of the three men in the general election in this November. Uh, and she remarked about Griswold and its legal progeny uh, that they are a guaranteed of equal treatment under the law. And she raised the question, quote, why have the United States of America if you are not going to have an understanding that no matter where you live in the U.S., you have the same protections? Um, and, you know, she talked about when you say states rights, whether you are talking about, you know, Loving versus Virginia, which is the ruling that struck down laws barring members of different races from marrying, uh, but also freedom of association cases or whether or not you can discriminate against a person because they hang out with people of another race or marry someone of the uh, uh, opposite sex. You have a huge line of cases that you eliminate in favor of states' rights. All the important decisions of the last 50 or 60 years that are fundamental to being an American no longer exist. So, you know, we, we see a battle line here that you know, is running as an undercurrent behind all of the, the front page news we're seeing about the abortion battles and, you know, the free speech battles and all of these things. Um, realize and remember, and it's important that you understand this, that a lot of what being an American today is about is the fact that we have rights to privacy and privacies that are set out in the Constitution, expanded by um, uh, amendments to the Constitution, and reinforced and ratified by these judicial decisions that you know interpret the laws and apply them based on the uh, assumption of these so-called you know en enshrined uh, rights that we have. So. You know, it, it is important that you know, we not just look at what's on the surface, but that we dig deeper, that we go into it and look uh, further and harder at you know, what is going on, you know, what are the actions that are being taken. I often say you, know, you, you have to look beyond you know, the details. You have to dig. You have to dig wider and you have to dig deeper. Because I, I can almost assure you, because it was, as I said, an obscure point in an interview that um, even the person doing the interview didn't pick up on. But the fact that uh, there is, you know, a, a few of these states considering uh, restrictions on abortion are also considering rolling in restrictions on uh, contraception into those laws as well. So, you know, digest that for a second. If we apply, you know, what's being talked about as the consequences for, you know, getting an abortion uh, or taking someone to get an abortion and so on and so forth, regardless of whether uh, of what time frame we're talking about. And I know we're banding about six weeks, 15 weeks, 24 weeks, etc. Regardless of that, if you um, if you take away the rights to privacy that underline and, and, and support these rights and, and others, uh, it, it becomes extremely difficult to, to live in America and, and celebrate 
many of the freedoms that we take for granted because many of them are rooted in the fact that we have these rights of privacy as defined in the Constitution and as you know ratified and um, and strengthened by these judicial rulings. Now, Ms. Kaffer closes out her article with this paragraph, which, uh, which I will read, and she writes, that we can control whether, when, and how often we become pregnant is the sine qua non of life for American women and, in parentheses, their male partners, close parentheses. Birth control allows us to participate in the economy, in politics, to improve our personal and financial situations, all because we can become mothers in our own time on our own terms. And she ends with, and I believe this is a right American women will fight to defend. So, and, and I agree with that. I think, you know, uh, all American women, regardless of, of, of party, uh, of race, you know, wherever you're, you're, you are or at, um, I think you need to, if you haven't already, and, and many have, I think you need to, to rise up, stand up, be heard, and, you know, get in the face of these, you know, predominantly, overwhelmingly male uh, politicians who are trying to uh, determine what you can do with your bodies. So, you know, it, it's, again, something to, to digest and, and find a way to practice your activism. Uh, so that's our call to action for that. Now, I want to tag on to this. Something that, you know, hearing some of these interviews as I was researching this, something that was not in the discussion. As you look at the landscape of, you know, anti-abortion legislation uh, going on in this country, what you see is the discussion centers around uh, procedures and techniques uh, exclusively um, uh, related to the female portion of the population. Um, the thought came to me as I was, was listening to you know, interviews and, and researching this. I'm like, what, what about the male side of the equation? Uh, should we, and I, I raise this as a question, if you'd like to chime in with, with your answer to it, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Um, what about the male end? of preventing pregnancies and you know key among that uh, is the vasectomy what if in these these laws with restrictions and with legal penalties civil penalties um, can we include vasectomies in that category uh, while there there are you know a a few male contraceptive pills there are more that are being researched and, and you're expected to come out onto the market in the next five, ten years or so that, you know, might warrant some type of uh, similar attention from, you know, the conservative side of the aisle uh, if they are looking at eliminating potential ways that, you know, births can be um, ended. Now, granted, when you compare and contrast um, receiving an abortion 
to receiving a vasectomy, uh, the former is uh, an after-the-fact uh, action, and the latter is a before-the-fact action. However, the net result is the same, that you know, a, a pregnancy that might have happened uh, or that might have you know, gone to term will be you know, intercepted and ended. So, you know, ladies, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, where the activism is on, you know, including male contraceptive uh, methods in the legislation. And I, you know, raise the question, what, what do you think the opponents to abortion would say if a, a substantial number of the, the electorate uh, rose up and said, you need to uh, include uh, male contraception in these laws. Uh, it should be possible if you know a a male gets a vasectomy in one of the states where you know these these laws are taking place. Uh, maybe someone could sue them or take them to court. Uh, maybe there's a you know a civil penalty they could pay because they are they are exercising a choice to stop a pregnancy before it happens. Uh, something to think about. And, and I don't have all the answers, um, but I do know that in you know, checking into it online, I don't find discussions happening out there uh, in, in any source that I have seen. Um, but it is something that is being brought up uh, in, in some of the states considering you know, legislation along with the fact that they're looking at uh, instituting bans on um, birth control pills, on you know, the, the so-called morning-after pill, uh, and also the Plan B pill that is, just, in, just so you know, part of the equipment that is uh, in a rape kit that is used in an investigation. Um, typically, um, but not 100% of the time, but usually uh, the, the rape victim will be given um, you know, this, this pill, this plan B, in order to uh, preclude the chance of getting pregnant as a result of the rape. So you know, some food for thought there and you know, something you know, I will continue to look at and try and find you know, more, more answers uh, if they're out there. Uh, this just came across the radar as I was going into final prep to, uh, to do this show, and I didn't have a whole lot of time to, to dig as, as deep as I normally do. But I will do that diligence, and I'll bring you whatever information I find on this in a subsequent podcast. So, you know, but something to think about. Send me an email if you have an opinion on it. Um, I, I'd love to have you know, discussions uh, about, you know, what this might mean and what the ramifications are. So let's, um, let's take our first break here and, you know, we'll uh, come back on the other side and talk about a couple of other things that are going on that I want to bring to your attention. So thanks for being here with me on Fired Up. When we come back from the break, we'll bring you some more interesting political subjects. You're listening to the Fired Up podcast. Thanks, and we'll be right back after this break. 
WJMS Media is the proud Raise Your Voice media sponsor for the American Lung Association's 8th Annual Lung Force Walk New York City, taking place on Saturday, May 21st at Pier 16 at the South Street Seaport in Manhattan. Walk with us to raise critical awareness and funds to end lung cancer and other chronic lung diseases. For more information on how to register for free or donate, visit www.lungforce.org NYC. Because when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. And welcome back. That was a public service announcement from your friends here at WJMS Media. Okay, let's get back into the game, shall we? And uh, speaking of games and things that go thud with regard to the Democrats. Um, the Biden administration is still trying to find a mechanism to uh, make good on one of the campaign promises, which was to relieve uh, student debt uh, at the college level. And it's been a process that has had multiple fits and starts. Um, it has been been you know proposed by president biden and attacked of course by the republicans and uh, also by some critics within the democratic party saying that it really is something that uh, can be very problematic as well as beneficial so let's look into that a little bit uh, there's an article that came out of uh, theweek.com and it was by samuel goldman and it talks about uh, a fairer way to cancel college debt. Now, the as I said, this has been a proposition that has been uh, praised by many and criticized by quite a few. Uh, and the article talks about um, that perhaps it might be finally happening uh, after more than a year of equivocation and haunted by dismal polling. Reports are circulating that the Biden administration is planning to cancel some of the $1.6 trillion higher education debt collectively owned by about 45 million people. Uh, it said in the maximal version of the plan, uh, the article says, would be a serious mistake. And it cites Michael Brendan Darty, uh, who observes in the National Review, the bulk of student loan is held by the relatively affluent with already high earnings and low unemployment, it is not clear why they need the extra help. Blanket forgiveness also effectively subsidizes higher education institutions that can charge high prices with the expectation that someone else will pick up the tab. Uh, it says in the past, debt forgiveness has been touted as a way to jumpstart the economy. With, with inflation excuse me, already rampant though, the benefits of injecting more cash into the economy are dubious at best. So the, the ideas that have been flowing you know, in opposition to this is that it is something that will benefit mainly the well-to-do in this country and will leave uh, those that are you know, poor or working class uh, with little in the way of real benefit. Um, can't, you know, the article goes on to say that canceling all the debt isn't the only option. Uh, in a new report that came out from the New York Federal Reserve, finds that capping forgiveness and means testing the benefit would provide better targeted relief at a lower cost. According to the Fed analysis, forgiving $10,000 of debt 
only for borrowers who earn less than $75,000 a year would raise the share of forgiven loan dollars given to borrowers who are already delinquent in their payments and live in low-income and minority neighborhoods. The effect of an income cap would be less dramatic but still significant if up to $50,000 of debt were forgiven. Either way, a more limited approach goes a long way to answer the criticism that forgiving student debt is a giveaway to the upper middle class and its favorite institutions. You know, and it, it continues on to talk about a more constrained plan wouldn't address all the objections. For one thing, it's still expensive. According to the New York Fed, even the stingiest proposal would still cost $182 billion, more than double the annual budget for the Department of Education. Now, something I want to point out here, uh, jumping out of the article for a section, second, um, there was a study done. The last time something like this was done with the 15-year experiment with the GI Bill, where you know college tuitions uh, and, and so forth were paid for for those veterans returning uh, you know, from World War II and the wars after that. Um, what they found was that for every dollar spent on you know, tuition reimbursements, uh, the employee, once they graduated, returned $7 to the economy. So even though if we use the uh, $182 billion cost, if that number holds true, then we're looking at almost a you know $800-900 billion that would be returned to the uh, GDP of the United States by the beneficiaries of the loan forgiveness. So, you know, it, it's something to keep in mind that, you know, there are always more than one side to the story. Um, the article goes on to say, you know, a um, loan, low forgiveness cap and means testing answer questions about why a student loans should be treated differently from other forms of debt. And this is a criticism that's been leveled against the Biden administration uh, by many uh, in response to the plan to, um, to repay or, or uh, forgive some student debt. Um, you know, many truck drivers, the article cites, for example, borrowed to pay for exploitative lease arrangements with their employers. By focusing on the cost of college over other financial burdens, the administration sends the message that it takes the problems of the highly educated more seriously than others. So, you know, there, there are, you know, criticisms coming from many different angles. Uh, the article continues, finally, there's the matter of fairness. Forgiveness of outstanding loans seems to re reward those who didn't make their payments at the expense of those who did. It also sets up uh, perverse incentives by encouraging the expectation that burdensome debts will be canceled again in the future. These concerns could be met at least partly by attaching loan forgiveness to big changes in the way we finance higher, ed for higher education. In the absence of such reforms, it's throwing more money into the same corrupt system. So, you know, the, the idea that, you know, forgiving some uh, level of college debt, whether it's $10,000 or $50,000, uh, the naysayers are citing that, you know, it uh, encourages people to go ahead and take out loans and, you know, have no intention of paying them back, banking on the fact that the federal government will likely bail them out down the road. 
Uh, obviously, that is a concern. That is something that would need to be addressed. And, you know, it is you know, part of the problem that we have when ideas like this are being floated. With regard to, you know, other types of loans that, you know, could fall into the same category, the article cites, you know, truckers loans, the article, you know, the, the article doesn't cite other types of opportunity loans uh, that potentially could fall in the same category, such as, you know, loans for starting up a business or uh, loans for, you know, financing, you know, purchases of equipment and so forth. So, you know, you could make the argument that, well, you forgave and paid back, you know, a chunk of college debt. Why don't you forgive and pay back uh, a chunk a chunk of uh, debt incurred for business development? You know, after all, we're creating jobs and, and pumping money into the economy. So why shouldn't we have, you know, some type of, you know, cushion in terms of the debt that we incur in, in starting it up? You know, and of course, then there's the political angle. Uh, as, as the article states, with midterm elections impending, though, Biden and Democrats are desperate to whip up enthusiasm. Since it offers direct individualized benefits and can theoretically be accomplished by executive action, student debt forgiveness is a tempting option. Biden's problem is that Americans with college uh, and especially graduate degrees are an integral part of the Democratic coalition, but only a minority of the electorate. Means-testing forgiveness of relatively small debts could be the best way to reward supporters without provoking an even larger backlash. So, you know, I, I think the means-testing idea is a good one, regardless of which way they go. Um, I, I agree with the, the premise of the article that the uh, already affluent aren't really desperately in need of forgiveness of, you know, loan debt for, for college. And it, it is something that, you know, definitely would have a benefit for those at the lower end of the earning spectrum. I also think that this is an indicative of a larger problem that the Democrats have, um, particularly with, you know, the midterm elections coming up, but also looking forward to 2024. And, and that is uh, the arguments that they are making are, at least in my opinion, relatively soft. Uh, the Democrats need very quickly, like yesterday, need to get better at, you know, facing the Republicans, facing the critics, uh, you know, full on, head on, and not equivocating, not, you know, fearing so much that they are going to sound, you know, cold, cruel, and heartless. I mean, that, that's what's winning the Republicans, uh, the races that they're running, that they have no fear about, you know, making an argument in the strongest possible terms and essentially daring the Democrats to respond to it. Um, this, this has been a problem that, I mean, I've noticed, uh, particularly in, in the period of time over the last few years as I've been focused on politics for this show. But what I find is that you know too many times the republicans will throw a hardball and the democrats uh will throw softballs uh it, it is time in in my opinion for the democrats to take a page from uh, michigan democratic state senator mallory mcmorrow who i profiled in my last podcast uh who stood to the floor of the michigan state senate 
and you know expertly filleted a Republican uh, colleague who had you know personally attacked her and and just said some some very very unprofessional things. Uh, well, this this senator came back and basically um, laid her out uh, verbally uh, on the public record, and you know her her remarks. Um, have not only gone viral, they've gone super viral. They've been discussed, you know, in just about every political corner. And I think it represents a template for what the Democrats need to be doing, particularly as, you know, they look to, you know, overcome the um, current poll ratings of, you know, President Biden. Uh, his poll numbers are in the 30s. And, you know, they, they need to bring the strongest possible argument to the table. They need to uh, explain to the American people what their agenda is about and explain it with facts and not wishes and, you know, and, and uh, calls for hope. Hope is a marvelous thing, but it doesn't get the problem solved. It just, you know, points at what's needed to be done rather than what should be done. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of, of, road to cover for the Democrats if they have any prayer of, um, you know, maintaining their control over the House and Senate, um, which, you know, all the pundits are, are pretty much unanimous in saying that it is most likely that the Republicans are going to take control of both houses come the midterms. And, you know, once they're in power, you know, there's going to be just a range of policies and, and laws and other things that are going to get uh, sliced and diced. You know, we've talked about this many times. Um, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, if the Republicans uh, gain control of the House and Senate, they are going to, as they did in 2010, with the policies that, you know, then President Obama put in place, they are going to be hell-bent for leather to uh, repeal, unwind, disassemble, um, or, or weaken to the point of non-function uh, all of the Democratic Party uh, policies that they have been railing against for uh, the, the last year or the, the two years of the Biden administration. And, you know, it, it's just going to create more chaos, more gridlock, uh, more confusion uh, among the American people, uh, among our allies, and it's really going to be problematic. And the Democrats need to do a better job of articulating these concerns, making it real for the American people. You know, we, we talked about in this episode the real effects of the anti-abortion legislation that is happening. Uh, related to that, you know, Oklahoma has pretty much given an outright ban to abortions in the state, which means that uh, not only will their residents not be able to get uh, those those services, but also people from neighboring states like Texas uh, will have uh, even fewer places to go and further to travel to get there. Um, it, you know, it is it is clear sometimes. And it seems very much that, you know, the Republicans and the conservatives are willing to not only cut off their nose to spite their face, but cut off just about their whole face to fight their to, to spite their face. 
Um, one need only look at, you know, what's going on in Florida with Governor DeSantis. Um, you know, basically, he went on a, a tirade and a campaign uh, and uh, got uh, laws proposed that would strip Disney of some of its, you know, special tax protections uh, for operating in the state, uh, seemingly not caring about the 80,000 employees that work at Disney and the countless, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people in businesses that surround the property that rely on, you know, Disney's business and the tourists that it attracts and those dollars in order not only to feed their families, but to take care of their communities. You know, it, it, it is just strange to me how one party can, you know, propose legislation that clearly and, and in reality will hurt their constituents in that area and they will do it anyway. Um, you know, it, it, is, it has been something that uh, has been a hallmark of conservative politics uh, probably for the last you know, 25 or 30 years that this sort of scorched earth approach to, to policy and to lawmaking really seems to fly in the face of uh, what you expect your elected officials to do. You know, we don't send our elected officials to Washington to stab us in the back. Uh, and the fact that, you know, many of them continue to do it and have continued to do it for, you know, many, many years uh, and still get returned uh, not only speaks to, you know, what, what they're doing, but to the, the borderline apathy and, and I don't care-ism that seems to be the hallmark of their constituents. Uh, when you hear interviews with you know, these politicians, uh, you know, they, they praise them, they support them, even though the legislation that they're passing uh, is clearly going to have a, a negative impact uh, on their lives. And, you know, this extends also to, you know, members of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, Senator Joe Manchin has repeatedly voted seemingly against uh, the best uh, intentions of his constituents for something that is, you know, a politically expedient for him uh, and, you know, serves to keep the the Republican attack dogs off his back uh, while he is in office. Um, you know, there, there just doesn't seem sometimes to be rhyme or reason to what these elected officials are thinking. Uh, and more importantly, uh, it doesn't seem to make clear sense as to what their constituents are thinking. Uh, you know, it is... It is a, a case where they are electing someone to office term over term over term, uh, and those people are going into their elected office and systematically uh, undermining their constituents' um, economic foundations and social foundations and educational foundations, uh, all the while bringing you know, numerous uh, issues to the forefront that are you know less important than the bread and butter issues, but much 
more um, able to be presented in a noisy fashion to kind of overshadow what's going on in the background. And at some point, the American voters are going to have to, you know, recognize this, get hip to it and, you know, make the hard choice of saying, look, if you're not going to do what we need done in our district, we're not going to vote for you anymore. And, you know, while that, you know, doesn't necessarily seem the case right now, it is something that we definitely need to make the case going forward. Uh, starting with the, the 2022 midterms and rolling right on down the road from there. Um, when you look at issues like redistricting, when you look at issues like uh, a woman's right to choose and, and a woman's health care, when you look at issues like education and you know the, the argument and the, the brouhaha being raised about critical race theory in, you know, the K through 12 grades when the facts are that CRT is not taught in those grades. That is a college level course. It is taught to college students, not to, you know, kindergarten, first, second and third graders. Um, you know, it, it you look at the fact that uh, Florida has banned 41 math books because, according to them, they are. They are preaching, you know, critical race theory and race identification and, you know, it's support of L LGBTQ. And, you know, that's marginally true at best. Um, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the examples that have been cited and, you know, doesn't really seem like they are having a political message. Um, but the conservative side of the aisle has made it as though these books are are calling them out to you know to be radicalized in the conservative fashion and it's just not necessarily the case so you know as we say on the show it's it's up to us to make sure that we hold our elected officials accountable and this is particularly true at the state and local level because that's where your your school board issues are decided that's where the police officers and sheriffs that you place on the force who you know may be uh white supremacists or may you know are you know, may have definitely racist tendencies that's where this happens and you know if we're not putting them in check then you know shame on us because we get exactly what we put in place so you you ask me you might ask me steve all right so we know what uh we need to do how do we go about it what what are the steps we need to take well as we've talked about on this show um countless times the first step is communication you need to make sure that you know who your elected officials are from you know the the local level your county level your state level up to the federal level who are the people who represent you? Who are you voting for to go into those offices? And then you need to communicate with them. You need to write them letters. You need to call their offices. You need to call the, the, um, the Capitol switchboard and ask to speak to your senator and your congresspersons. And you need to let them know what your opinions are 
on the issues of the day. But more importantly than that, you need to, to put physicality to it. You need to go to their offices. You know, when, when they're out of Washington, they are in their districts. And you know, that means they are available to the public, to their constituents, to talk about the issues and find out what it is that their constituents want to get done. And you need to be uh, consistent and persistent about doing it. You know, you, you can't just write one letter or send one email or send one fax and think, okay, job done. No, you've got to become almost a weekly caller to their office. You've got to be to the point where they, they almost recognize your phone number when they see it on their phones and know who you are. You've got to make sure that you are talking to them on a regular basis, that you are bending their ear, that you are meeting with them at every opportunity so that they understand that they are not just out there operating and nobody's watching. Uh, next thing is you've got to organize not just yourself, you've got to organize your circle, uh, whether it's your neighbors, whether it's your community, uh, whether it's your family, all of the above. You need to make sure that everybody uh, in that circle, in that group, is talking with the elected officials with one voice. You need to make sure that if there are petitions going around, that you sign on to them. And most importantly, you need to make sure that you vote in every election, whether it's a local election for, you know, for your mayor, your city council, your school boards, uh, your judges, uh, so whether it's a county election for you know, your, your board of trustees, your county selectmen, whatever the, the political office is, all the way up to you know, your president of the United States, you need to make sure that you are on record as voting in every election. Because I guarantee you this, that uh, when you call, when you communicate, when they get your name, they're going to go to the voter registration polls. They're going to go to the voting records and see just how many times that you have gone into that booth and pulled that lever or circled in that dot or whatever. And if they see that you are a consistent voter or that your group is part of a group of consistent voters, they are more likely to listen to you. It is a numbers game. So you, you can't just, you know, go vote in the presidential election and think your job done. No, you need to pay attention to what's happening in your local area. And I would say even more so than at the national level, because it's the local elections that govern your day to day lives. The president doesn't appoint your school board. Your mayor and city council do. The president doesn't hire your uh, senators, I'm sorry, your, your sheriffs and your police officers, your mayor and your city council do. Your senator in Washington and your congressman in Washington doesn't, um, you know, set your local tax rates, your school education tax rates. All of that is done at the local level. And as we've talked about on this show many times, the feeding system for the people who are in Washington, D.C., are the local election processes. The people who win for mayor, the people who win for city council, go on to run for mayor. Mayors go on to run for state rep and then state senator. And these individuals go on to run for um, national 
House and National Senate seats. So you can't just be focused on the national level elections. You need to make sure that you are focused at the local level as well. That is the way that we can influence our elected officials, whichever side of the aisle is on. It doesn't matter. If you're a Democrat, you need to make sure that you understand where all your Democratic candidates are. If you're a Republican, you need to make sure that you know where all your Republican candidates stand. Uh, and you need to make sure that you're aware of who else is in the race because it may be advantageous to, you know, to look and listen to your Libertarian candidate. Uh, you know, to you know, to your other your third party candidates to see what they're talking about, and you know, look to maybe elevate them with enough votes so that they get on the ballots, and then they can begin to exercise you know your influence over our political system. That's the way it's designed to work. That's how the founding fathers set it up, and that's what we need to do. So as always with this show, we're we are all about exercising the franchise, exercising to make sure that, you know, nobody can stand in the way of you casting your vote and making sure that you are voting for people that think like you do. So that that's your that's your call to action. That's your call to practice activism. And we need to make it happen. Uh, you know, we are, you know, what, five and a half months out from the midterms and, you know, a year or two years away from the next national election cycle so all right that's that's going to wrap up the rant for this week everybody i thank you all for listening uh please make sure that you check out our archive site uh, sites you know we're on all of the podcast sites um google spotify stitcher apple all of those uh you can just go and search for fired up as one word or search for wjms and you'll get access to all of our shows. All right. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Please stay safe. And we will do this all again. I'll be rolling another one of these out in seven days. Mm-hmm.